Good morning. Well, we have two sacred ordinances in the Bible. One of them is baptism, and the other is communion. And we have communion here once a month. Every other month it's on Wednesday, and the alternating months it's on Sunday. So this is Communion Sunday this morning. And I would like you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As the ushers and elders come forth, we'll pass out the bread and the cup as we're going to 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah, you can pass out. While we're all receiving, we're all going to wait so we can partake together. But I'd like us to read the first few verses from last week's study. In chapter 15, we're going to read, starting in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James and by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. I've been on a personal journey these last few months, and I've been reading about you know the sacraments and reading about communion, and I've been reading about different denominations within the family of Christ and how they do things and it's fascinating to me that on the one hand we have some that reverence it so highly that it almost almost gets in the way of the reflection of the cross itself because they believe that there's power in the communion but then on the other side I found that there are other brothers and sisters in the faith that love the Lord who demean it so far that it is just a happenstance, you know, something that we're supposed to do on occasion, like a prayer before dinner, maybe rush through. And we know that the truth is in the middle. But then as I, I study communion, I'm reminded, especially here in 1 Corinthians 15 on the study of the resurrection, that the Lord asked us through all time until he comes to remember him through the eating of the bread and the taking of the cup in remembrance of the work that he has done, he is done, he's doing currently, and that which he is going to do in the future. And I'm reminded that this gospel is about his resurrection, about his work, about what he has done. And so, yes, the token itself, there's no power in it. It is merely a symbol. But the power of the resurrection, the power of Christ our conquering Lion of Judah on the cross who conquered sin, death, and the devil for us deserves every reverence, deserves every moment, deserves our daily giving of a living sacrifice, realizing that as we take this bread and we drink this cup, 
that we can give a living sacrifice because he has made us alive by his work on the cross. And so um, if you go ahead and prepare the spiritual struggle of trying to get that plastic piece off the top. Let's pray and then we're going to partake of the bread together. Lord, it doesn't matter how clear our speech, it doesn't matter how perfect our garb, our robes, our church, Lord. It doesn't matter what time, what place, what language, Lord. As we take this token and crush it between our teeth, we remember your glorious victory on the cross as you sacrificed yourself for us. And we pray, Lord, that as we give thanks and remind ourselves that we are victorious, we are constantly reminded it's because of your sacrifice that that it is so. We thank you in Jesus' name. Let's partake. You know, in, in many churches, they have communion every single week. It's a center point of their Sunday morning, their resurrection service, the first day of the week. And in many of those churches and temples and cathedrals, the pastor or the priest or the father, whatever name they want to give him that day, he's facing the cross and his back is to the fellowship. Now, the reason they do that is because it's a ministry to God and he is to be interceding for the people. But we know that the word of God says that there's one mediator between Christ, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is our great high priest. And that is why I take it together with you, because it is that understanding that is by his blood that we are healed, that we are a kingdom of priests, because when he gave his life, the veil in the temple was torn in two, and we are no longer separated from God. And it's with that understanding as we take this cup that we realize that we are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, that he makes us all righteous. So let's pray once again, and we'll partake together. Lord, we stand here together, we sit here together, Lord, and understanding that it's by your blood that we are healed, that we are made new, and that we have a future hope in you. We thank you that you give us this token that we can, we can partake of it with many other brothers and sisters throughout the whole world and through all time because of what you have done for us. We want to give you all thanks and glory and praise in Jesus' name. Let's partake. Lord, on that cross you said it is finished. And then you gave up the ghost and they buried you in the grave, Lord. And we know over these last few weeks, and if you tarry the next couple of weeks, as we study what happened next, Lord, and what it means for us that you rose from the grave, our conquering hero, to show that you took the wrath of God upon yourself, and that we are holy because you make us holy. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to now go to verse 20 where we left off in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. My Bible's been blessed. I've dropped a couple drops here. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we left off in verse 19, so we're going to start in verse 20. But before we do, I want to remind us that last week we had the defense of the resurrection and build the backdrop there. Remember, the Corinthians trusted in Jesus Christ. They had received the gospel. They knew that he rose from the dead, but they had a hard time culturally because resurrection is just not a thing. People are not going to come back from the dead. They just, they just disappear. And so Paul is making first a defense of the Lord's resurrection, and then it's a defense of our resurrection, that we will rise again. Remember the three evidences that he used in, first, in the first portion of the chapter? The Corinthians' testimony was the first proof of the resurrection, that they were saved, they were born again, they were walking with the Lord. Second, Paul used the scriptures. He expounded from the scriptures for the defense of the resurrection, the prophecies concerning Jesus, that that future hope had happened, and the future hope that we have will also happen. And in third, we read in our portion of Scripture during communion, he talked about the eyewitness accounts, the apostles, the 500, James, the half-brother of Jesus, and then finally, Paul himself. And you remind, we remember last week, excuse me, we remember last week that Paul's testimony was a radical, radical testimony. And yet he is now a follower of the Lord Jesus. And so today, we're going to look at the resurrection. And as he continues to speak to us, the Holy Spirit putting it on Paul's heart, we're going to see what that means for us. And where are we going? But to know where we're going, we need to know where we came from. And so today, we're going to have a couple of really cool doctrinal things to look at. And so if you don't like doctrine, today you're in trouble. Let's go before the Lord one more time, ask for him to bless the reading of his word, and then we're going to go into verses 20 through 23. Lord, we pray for clear minds. We pray for open ears. Pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive your word this morning, that you would teach us and direct us through the reading of your word. We pray that you would empower it and that you would teach us, Lord, and that we would grow in you and in a better understanding of what you're doing in each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we go in, I just love verse 20 because I, I love how it's just a, a thesis statement for this whole section. Let's read verses 20 through 23, chapter 15. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. And so here we, we hear a couple of illustrations. The first one is going to be that Jesus is not the last person to be resurrected. He's the first fruit. He's the first one. Now, this illustration is really cool because if we go back to the Old Testament, we see this Feast of First Fruits or the Feast of Weeks. It's 50 days after the Sabbath of the Passover. Now, the Lord is crucified and 50, on the Passover, and then after the Passover, 50 days, we have the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts when the Lord pours out His Spirit on the church and shows that the helper has come. But we see this timeline has been 
year after year, decade after decade, century after century played out. But what is happening there? Because that's not a part of our culture. We don't really know and we don't really identify with it. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 10, Moses said, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but this spring harvest, this barley harvest, that is the entire economy of Israel. And so you're going to plant, you're going to sow your seed. You're going to till your ground. You're going to prepare that. You're praying for rain. There is no water. There is no irrigation. The Lord has to water the crops at that time. The Lord has blessed that harvest. The rain has come. The grain has grown. You have fought off invaders and robbers and thieves and every other nation around you that just wants to come in and steal it. The most dangerous time is right at the harvest time. When you have gone out there and you brought everything in, it's all sitting there in your granary. And you had to separate the chaff from the wheat and you had to get the grain into the millstone and you had to start turning it into flour. This is the economy. This is the food. This is how your entire nation is going to survive. But before you partake of it, before you even think, like Thanksgiving fellowship meal, and everyone's looking at the dessert table like, oh, no, you can't touch that yet. No, 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 no. They have to take the first, the best part, the first portion that's ready and they need to bring it to God and they dedicate it in what's called the heave offering. They bring that first portion of that crop. Remember, the entire civilization, the entire society is based on this crop. This is how you're going to feed your kids. And they bring it and they dedicate it to God. The Lord's resurrection is that heave offering. He is the first resurrected, but he is not the last. We are the harvest. Jew and Gentile, all who call upon the name of the Lord, every soul that has, as the Bible said, gone to sleep, has been buried in the grave, will all rise up in the harvest. He is the first fruits. And there in Acts chapter 26, verse 23, it says that Christ would suffer, that he would, have, he, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim the light to the Jewish peoples and to the Gentiles. Every soul. Every person that proclaims Jesus Christ as Lord, confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart, will be saved. Not only will they be saved from damnation in hell, but they will be resurrected. Bodies are going to come out of the ground, united with their souls in heaven, and we will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, there's a second illustration here, if, as if that wasn't Enough. I mean, we could just talk about that. We could have that sermon series for five weeks if I really wanted to hang out here. But even in this second, this section here, the second illustration is Adam. Now, remember, to know where we're going, we need to know where we come from. And so our doctrinal thing that we're going to talk about today is the first Adam and the last Adam. Adam and Eve were made perfect they were in the garden they walked with the lord in the coolness of the day they had fellowship they were just to tend everything they could do anything they wanted they just couldn't touch one tree and what do they do straight to it and then they sinned and through that sin the original sin brought death suffering sickness thorns thistles 
animals devouring themselves. All those things came from the fall. And the Lord kicked them out of the garden, put an angel in the way, can't come back here. And we were separated forever from the Lord. And through Adam, all have a sin nature. Every baby that's born is an immediate little terror that has to be trained up and disciplined as, as beautiful and as awesome as they are. They are born into sin. But Romans chapter 5 tells us clearly that even though we are all born into sin through Adam, through Jesus Christ, we are all born into righteousness. We are new creations. He said it right. Now, we're going to read a little bit here. We're going to read from verses 12 to 21 of Romans chapter 5. Don't worry, I'm putting it up there. But if you want to thumb through Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, bear with me, for this is, it just teaches itself. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Super important. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. If you're a highlighter, I'd highlight that bad boy right there. But let's continue, verses 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Verse, verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When, you know, when I put that in there, I'm like, okay. I started with two verses as I'm studying. I'm like, okay, Romans chapter 5, got two verses. I'm like, I always, whenever I put a reference verse and I put lots of them, you guys know, I want every sermon to be a fire hose of scripture because if I don't, what, what else am I going to say that's better than the word itself? But uh, I put two verses and then I, I always read behind it and in front of it just to make sure the context is good. I'm like, oh man, that's too good. And so I added those two. And the next thing you know, I got 12 verses up there. I'm like, how can I cut this? You can't cut this. But you see the doctrine there. Through Adam, all have sinned. But through Jesus Christ, if you are baptized in his righteousness as a fire filled with the Spirit, you're born again, a new creation. We are righteous in him. 
And because we are righteous in him, we will be resurrected with him. He has taken us in. He is making us alive. We talk about living a victorious Christian life, and that has just been lost in our culture. When people think of a victorious Christian life, they think of a life of happiness. Oh, let's, be, let's be real. Deep down, they think of a life of prosperity, a life of blessing, where the Lord is just opening every Red Sea for you, conquering every enemy, manna comes from heaven. I mean, that's a victorious Christian life. No. No, Jesus lived a victorious Christian life. He is the victorious one. He had great times of fellowship, great times of miracles. He also suffered. He was lied about. He was ridiculed. He was backstabbed. He was betrayed. He was physically beaten. He was abused. And he allowed those things to happen because the victorious Christian life is not that we live life more easy, but that we live life more abundantly, life itself. Are you alive today? Yes, we're alive in Christ, but are you really living your life? Are you alive emotionally? Are you, are you experiencing the gifts that God has given you, the small things, the big things, friendships, weddings? Are you living in the moment, they say? Are you spiritually alive? He has made you alive. He has given you eyes to see and ears to hear. And are you using that grace to sin more? Or are you using that grace to draw closer to the Lord? How is it that I can read about an aesthetic monk in Egypt, in a Greek Orthodox monastery, living in the midst of militant Muslims, talking about how deep and how fulfilling their life is. And I could speak about my kids who don't know about any of these doctrines at all. And they're running outside in my grass, on the, t- on the swing, just living life. And yet some of us, with all of our material blessings and all of our stuff, we're not living a victorious life. Christian life. Oh, we may claim it. We may have a t-shirt of it. We may have a bumper sticker of it. But in your soul, have you made a life? Now, you don't need to be a child on a tire swing. You don't need to be a a Greek uh, Orthodox uh, monk in an Egyptian desert. You don't need any of those things because we have Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I came that you may live life and live life more abundantly. But I don't want you to leave here to think that we're just talking about Today, we're talking about a glorious future and a glorious hope. Not only are we to live life more abundantly now, we're to live life more abundantly in a forever future because of his victorious work. And he's not done yet. These are just two illustrations. The first illustration, the first fruits. That he is the first fruit of a great harvest. Second illustration, That through Adam we all died, but through him we all live. And now in verses 23 through 28, and we're going to spend some time here in these scriptures, it says, but each one under his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, and he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all and power. Excuse me, I wanted to throw in an extra all there. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. 
The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Verse 28. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And the third illustration here is the kingdom of God itself. So first, the first fruits, Adam, the last Adam, and now the kingdom of God. I want to point out some things here, and maybe you might have caught this. And if you feel weak this morning, if you feel spiritually dead, you feel like you're enslaved to the world, you think like your body's just falling apart, you don't know what to do with it anymore, you just feel like a complete failure. Maybe it's depression, anxiety, maybe it's something that's just conquering you right now. I want you to meditate on this portion of Scripture, verses 23 through 28. Because it says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, this world of the enemy of darkness and the literal government, for he must reign, he will put all enemies under his feet, and he will make all things subject to him. You see who the emphasis is on? Not you. No, nothing about you in this entire section of scripture. You are given this victory. He is our glorious conqueror. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the Alpha and the Omega. It's through him, Colossians 1, that all things consist and exist. We live a victorious Christian life because he is the first fruit of the harvest, because he is victorious. And what do you got to do to deserve this? Nothing. Nothing. You don't have to be healthy, wealthy, smart, happy. You don't have to be content. You don't even have to be a good Christian. Because he, 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 he is victorious. And he is alive. All things are going to be made subject to him. Unfortunately, too many Christians today do not know who Jesus Christ is. I'm sorry, I, this is the way I acknowledge it, but they believe in what I call the Barney Jesus, who loves everybody, he's just a poor victim, he just likes to sing to us, give us hugs, and tell us everything's going to be okay. That is not the Lord. The Lord of all creation is all-powerful, all-knowing, all present. He knows all things. All things exist because he speaks it. Not an atom, not a molecule, not a proton, not a neutron moves in his creation without his permission. He is not weak. And he is in control of all things. And he has told us there is a glorious, a glorious victorious future for every single one of us. Present and future. They mock him on college campuses. They want to have debates and they want to ridicule Christians. They want to ridicule the faith. They want to just act like it's just another mythology. They want to vote us out. They want to get rid of the Bible. They want to take the Ten Commandments out. They want to erase history. They want to pretend like the Western Hemisphere and Western civilization is not founded entirely on the Bible and the work of God. They want to pretend that, no, it's all gone. It's just economics, they say. And in Psalm 2, what does it say? The Lord sits on the heavens and he laughs at the plans of man because he is going to return after he pours out a seven-year judgment and pours out his wrath on this planet. 
And then he's going to come back as the conqueror he is. And he is going to slay his enemies in the valley of Megiddo. And we will be right there with him. And again, anytime I mention the tribulation and I mention those things, I don't, I, I say that with the full weight of understanding what that means. And we will rule and reign with him. That is what Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is sharing with the Corinthians. This is his work is your work because of what he has done. And so in Romans chapter 8, Paul is telling the Romans what he has shared with the Corinthians, what he's sharing with us through all time immemorial. Immemorial. I should try speaking English better. Romans chapter 8, verse 37, he says, Yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't see your name in there. I thank God my name's not in there. I thank God I don't have to do any of those things to be victorious because we would fail. But we are through him more than conquerors because we need to know who he is. And guys, we just went through the last chapter. He conquered death and started walking around. Hey, guys, what's going on? Oh, they're having a prayer meeting over there. I'll just walk through this wall. I'll just show up here. Oh, they look sad out there fishing all night. They don't know what to do again. They don't know what's going on as usual. Oh, look at there. There's that guy that betrayed me. Man, I love him so much. Why don't I get the grill going for him? And there he's cooking that fish on the on the seashore and they say it's the Lord and they go running to him that's all we got to do to live a victorious Christian life all you have to do is run to the Lord all you have to do is accept what he has done for you there's nothing about results in any of it he has given us the results remember he is the first fruit we are the harvest what does the harvest do to deserve being the harvest the work has been done. The Lord has raised them up. He watered. He planted his seeds. He did it. It's already been dedicated to God. It's already been given to God. The harvest just is. And so it is with us. Just as we were born into Adam, did any of you vote to be born into Adam? I didn't vote to do that. And yet we were. And when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, just as we were born into Adam, we are born into the faith. We are born into his family, adopted sons and daughters. And we can live victoriously because we can die victoriously, knowing that it is not the end. That if we live a life that in the world's eyes is completely worthless, let's get even more nitty-gritty. What about the child that is not viable and dies? What about the aborted child? What about one that dies sick? What about the child that is maimed and dies? 
In society, we would say, what a waste. Oh, that's, that's terrible. But for the believer, because of the work of Jesus Christ and his victory, they enter into the gates of heaven and will live from eternity to eternity, from everlasting to everlasting in the presence of the king. There, there is no failure in Christ. There is no loss. And we can live a long, old life. And let's be even more clear. If we are blessed and we live to old age, we will fall apart. We will make doctors rich. We will make retirement home people rich. And they'll be shoving the jello into us and we'll be there half comatose. Maybe I'm speaking to myself here. And then finally, we'll close our eyes. And what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. I mean, I get terrified when I think of, man, what if I get Alzheimer's? What if I lose my faculty? What if I forget the Lord? What if I forget the Bible? What if I just stop? What if I'm there cussing out some nurse in some retirement home? They're like, oh, yeah, and he used to be a pastor. (laughs) And then I remember, I remember I am the first fruits of Jesus Christ. All I got to do is live. That I am not following the first Adam, I'm a follower of the last Adam, and that in his kingdom, no matter how we slide in there, we will be victorious. And we can rejoice. We can rejoice in any circumstance because we are victorious in him. Because he did the work. He will conquer. He will set his enemies under his feet. He will set all things well. And he will rule and reign. And I will rule and reign with him. Because he's going to give me a new body. And we're going to talk about that now. Verses 29 through 34. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all. Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness. And do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now, calm down, Mormons. That's not what it means. We're not baptizing people into the dead. That's why we've got to look at things in its context. Look at the context here. He is being sarcastic. What he's saying is, why even get baptized at any age if you're just going to die and go in the ground? He's saying, why do I contend with beasts? He's saying, when I die daily... When he's talking about this, he's not talking about Romans chapter 6, that we need to die daily spiritually. No, he's literally meaning I'm getting beaten up every single day. Why am I going through persecutions? Why do I have the threat of death? Why am I being arrested if I don't have a resurrection? So he's being sarcastic. Why do we die if it's for no reason? Remember last week he said, Is my preaching in vain? Without the resurrection, the preaching is in vain. Christianity is vain. Everything we do is a complete waste of time if we are not resurrected with the Lord, and we will. Now, 
The other doctrinal issue we're going to discuss today is the two resurrections. There are two resurrections. Now, the first resurrection is going to be the resurrection of the believers, and the second, the resurrection of the damned. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. We're going to talk about the Bema Seat and the Great White Throne Judgment. What are the differences and how does it work? But first and foremost, in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, that is where it begins speaking to us about the two resurrections. This is in the end times. So if you're a amillennialist, I don't even understand how you read the Bible. But Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble. That's the tribulation. Such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book, verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there is this resurrection that's going to take place. And the time of Jacob's trouble is the last portion of the tribulation, but the whole tribulation, seven years. And there's this reference throughout the Bible in the New Testament that when we die, we are, quote unquote, sleeping. Now, this is not soul sleep. Because the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, for context, for we walk by faith, not by sight, because verse 8, we are confident, yes, rather pleased, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, with the Lord. Let me try reading this correctly this time. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing with him. So there's this separation between the body and the soul. You're like, yeah, I get it. I know, but when you're burying that body in the grave of your loved one, and you're weeping, and you're like, yes, but I know they're in heaven, but you're looking at the body, it's going in the ground. That's when it's important for us to know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so... When does the body come back to the soul? Because we will have a resurrection. We're going to cast off this tent, every one of us. There's only one out. We're going to talk about that in a second. But we feel every emotion there is when we bury a loved one, when we bury a child, when we look at that corpse, that tent. But we need to identify and we need to realize before, I, I did this backwards on purpose. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we just looked at verses 7 through 9. But what do verses 1 through 6 say? Verses 1 through 6, Paul wrote this, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God. That's the resurrected body. A house not made with hounds, hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven if indeed having been clothed we shall not be found naked for who who we are for we who are in this tent groan being burdened not because we want to be unclothed but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life verse 5 now he who has prepared us for this very thing is god who also has been given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are 
always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. This is important because these are the nitty-gritty positions of our faith. You know, we don't feel the Lord near us. We're not in his presence in the throne room. We have a hope because we've seen Jesus Christ resurrected. We've seen him conquer the death. We've seen him walking in his glorified body. And then he's going to be, he's at, in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But we will be separated from our bodies if we die. And we need to have this hope that that body is going to raise up the grave and that we're going to live forever. That's what the Corinthians are wrestling this. And this is what we wrestle with. Corinthians are wrestling with that and they don't know what to do. Now, when the rapture comes, this is the only out. And I am hanging on to the rapture. When the rapture comes, we will be harpazoed, caught up, raptus, translated, immediately in the presence of God. That is the first resurrection, and the dead in Christ will rise up. And the bodies will be reunited. Our brothers and sisters that are in the kingdom right now do not have their glorified body. Their souls are there. What do they look like? I have no idea. But the dead will rise up with the church as we go up, and Christ will come for us. And we will be reunited in the tribulation. We will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll be in fellowship with him. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it describes this. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall be always, we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. When we're there, we will be at the Bema seat judgment. The Bema seat is the reward seat for the believer, for we shall not be damned. We are not appointed unto wrath. That's where we receive our crowns. That's where we receive the rewards for faithful servant. Teachers and pastors get special crowns. Um, I don't I didn't vote for it. That's what the man said. But when we get those things, we cast them down at his feet. We give them right back because we know. But I warned you about another judgment, the great white throne. I warned you about another resurrection, the resurrection of the damned. What are we talking about there? In John chapter five, the gospel verses 20 through 29, it speaks of it. It says, do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. At the end of the tribulation, there is a resurrection one part two. You see, the Bible tells us that the tribulation saints will be brought up. And that's the part two of the first resurrection, the resurrections of the believer. Right after Satan is cast into the lake of fire, the Bible says in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 5, I saw thrones and they sat on them. The judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead, 
did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So the rapture, part one of the first resurrection, end of the tribulation, seven years, the tribulation saints are resurrected. That is the first tribulation, or the, excuse me, first resurrection. After the thousand year reign of Christ, so 1,000 years of glorious reign where he is in control of all things and we rule and reign with him in our glorified bodies. Your second question, no, I have no idea what we look like, but way better than now. <laughs> After the millennium is over, all of the dead will be raised, all. Every human being that has ever lived and been buried will be raised up. And there is a second resurrection, the resurrection of the damned, the second death, the great white throne judgment. It's found in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw the great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, the, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his work. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So Satan is sent into the lake of fire, the great white throne, all those that have perished into everlasting damnation are in Sheol. They're in the bosom of the earth where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. At the end of the millennial kingdom, that's when they will be cast into hell with Satan and his angels. And it will be from everlasting to everlasting. The saddest moment in all time, in all creation. How, how can we be in the presence of God and be in experience in this and not have any tears? The Bible says we won't have any tears. People ask me that question a lot, and I tell you, my answer is this. Because along with that is, how can I be happy in heaven when I know my loved ones are in hell? My answer is always the same. Do not underestimate the presence of Almighty God. The presence of our loving, eternal Father will so supersede any human emotion, any created thought, anything that we have ever done. It will outlast and outshine to such a presence that it will seem dim. It will seem dim in retrospect. But they will all be damned forever. They will not disappear. They will be cast into a lake of fire. And just as they are judged, we will live victoriously forever, for everlasting from everlasting in the presence of God. I had two children born prematurely that went instantly into the presence of God. They will never suffer. They will never be on this earth. They will never experience politics. They will never experience all kinds of things. Of course, of course, I weep. I have a hole that can only be filled by the Lord. But I know that I will see them again. We will rule and reign together. And it is not a wasted life because it's from everlasting to everlasting. And that's how I can identify with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, who says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Be at the bema, don't be at the great white throne. If you don't remember anything, remember that. Follow after the Lord. Remember, 
all those who curse the name of God will be damned for eternity from everlasting to everlasting. They are not victorious. You should weep with them for them. Don't, don't weep that Christ seems weak on this planet. Don't weep that he is mocked. Don't weep, oh, no, we're defeated. Weep for them. From everlasting, from everlasting, everlasting to everlasting, they will be in eternal damnation and fire, and we will rule and reign with him. They could take your life. They could torture you. They could take away your finance, take away your health. They could feed you jello, and your mind could go. But we're victorious in him. We're the first fruits through him. And that's how Paul can say and live his life so flippantly, just willing to throw it away. Because in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So this morning, let's live resurrected, death-conquering lives. Wherever state you're in, knowing it's because he is victorious and he is the one who rose again and so shall we let's pray father we thank you so much for your word and we pray that you would have your way in us help us lord to be less of us and more of you as john the baptist said we pray that we would leave here understanding no matter what life we live no matter what's in front of us lord that we are victorious in you because you are victorious we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer, come on up. Love to pray with you, share with you. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. I know there's some brownies and chocolate pretzel stuff left over there. Get those while you can. God bless you. And have a